2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Grab a Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11 as we continue in our sermon series, An Unlikely Family Tree. I love the old Christmas carols. Uh, we sang two of my favorites this morning with O Come All Ye Faithful and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. One that's kind of a fan favorite for a lot of people that we're going to be singing next week, spoiler alert, uh, is O Holy Night. And one of my favorite lines in O Holy Night goes like this. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. One of the reasons I love those old carols is the rich theology that they have. I love that line, long lay the world in sin and error pining. It's a realistic acknowledgement of the condition of the world that we live in, that it has been captured by the grip and the curse of sin. It doesn't take much for us to look around the world and acknowledge that the world is not as it should be, that the world is messed up, that it's broken. All we have to do is turn on the news for five minutes or uh, go hang out with our family or whatever else it might be. The world is messed up. It's not as it's supposed to be. And so we might ask, what's wrong with the world? Fundamentally, what is wrong with the world that is causing everything else to be wrong? And you might get a variety of answers if you start asking that question, what's wrong with the world? For some people, they might say that our fundamental problem is violence, things like wars and terrorism. Our fundamental problem for others might be economic, that there are some who have and there are others who have not. Our problems are centered around things like greed and poverty. For others, the fundamental problem might be environmental, Things like climate change or natural disasters. Others might say that our fundamental problem is political, that we don't have the right people in charge. And once we get my side in charge, then all of our problems will be solved. For others, the problem might be educational. We don't have all of the right information. And once we educate ourselves and others, all of our problems will be solved. It might be relational. We can't get along. Things like racism, sexism, breakdown in families, so on and so forth. And now listen, all of those things and much more are genuine problems. But let me suggest to you that they are the fruit, not the root. What is the root of all of it? Let me give you my favorite answer to this question. In the early 1900s, the London newspaper, The Times, sent out a question to famous authors of the day, asking them, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton answered by saying, dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. It's a great answer, and it's not one that most of us would have the humility to give. But the fundamental problem that is at the root of every other problem is sin. It's the reality that we are in rebellion against our Creator, that we are sinners against a holy God. That is the bad root that leads to all of the rotten fruit that we just described. So this morning, as we continue this Christmas series, looking at the women in the genealogy of Jesus, we're going to study the story of David and Bathsheba, and I believe this is one of the most horrifying depictions of sin in all of the Bible. And we're going to spend some time this morning looking sin straight in the eye and seeing what happened and what it means for us. And I get it. I get it. A sermon on the power and the destruction of sin doesn't feel very Christmassy. 
Uh, this is not one of those warm, fuzzy sermons this morning. I'm just warning you. But here's why it matters. Until you understand the power and the destructiveness of sin, Christmas will not be glorious. You know why? Because why do you think he came? Do you think he came to give us carols and presents and lights and cookies and movies and all of those things? No. The angel said to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came, because we needed to be rescued. And so this morning, this is what I hope we'll see. Here's the main point. Sin destroys, grace redeems, and Jesus is the king that we need. In Matthew 1.6, it says, Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the story. Father in heaven, we stand with awe before your throne, Lord, acknowledging that we are sinners, that we have fallen short of your law. We tremble at that reality. But Lord, we tremble even more at the reality of grace. Lord Jesus, that you entered into this world to rescue us. And where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. So Father, I pray that you would accomplish a few things in our hearts and minds this morning through your word. I pray that you would bring us to a place of conviction and challenge at the reality of sin. I pray that we would be wowed by your grace this morning, astonished at what you've done. And I pray that we would leave rejoicing and worshiping Jesus Christ like never before, because he is the true king that we need. Help us to understand this word by your Holy Spirit and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The first point this morning is that sin destroys. Sin destroys. Let's jump into the story. Chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, "'Is this not Bathsheba?' the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So just to give you a little bit of context for the book of 2 Samuel, David became king earlier in this book after the death of Saul. And then in chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David, and he promises him that in his line there would be this everlasting kingdom. And in this book up to this point, it has been nothing but success for David. He's had military success, great wealth, a large family, multiple wives and children, and much more. And this is where we find ourselves now in chapter 11. The first thing I want to show you about the destructive nature of sin is the spiral of sin. The spiral of sin. That it's this downward spiral that sucks us in. You know, I don't think that David woke up this morning and checked his to-do list and the day started off like this. What to do today? Let's see. Have breakfast. Okay. 
Uh, play my harp, write a new psalm. Got it. Uh, check on the sheep. Got it. Oh, adultery. That's today. Almost forgot. No. You didn't wake up that morning and go, I think I'll commit adultery today. Sin is this deceptive thing that sucks us into a downward spiral. Sin is like a mile when we give it an inch. And we're going to see this progression and how it started as something seemingly so innocent and became the horrible scandal that it was. First of all, notice in verse 1 that it began because David was not pursuing his calling. Verse 1 makes it clear. This is the time when kings went out to battle, but David remained in Jerusalem. It started very simply by him being out of position, him not being where God had called him to be. And guys, let me be very clear with you. That's so often how it starts in our lives. When we get spiritually lazy, when we get out of position, when we're out of the word and prayer, when we're out of Christian community, when we're not in the local church, when we're not in small group with other believers, that's so often how it starts, when we're out of position. But then second, David, it began in his heart and mind with his sinful desires. Notice he saw Bathsheba bathing from his vantage point on the roof, and his mind began to wander. And instead of taking his thoughts captive, maybe going inside, playing his harp, doing something else, he let his mind wander. So then the thoughts turn to actions. He asks about Bathsheba, and he finds out that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, this should have been it for David. He should have been like, oh man, she's a married woman. I'm a married man. And on top of that, Uriah the Hittite was not just some random guy to David. He was one of his mighty men. So look in 2 Samuel chapter 23. It lists the mighty men of David. These are like his guys, his top lieutenants, his most loyal troops. Uriah was one of them. This is a close friend and ally. And then David takes Bathsheba and they sleep together. And you know, at this point, I want to give a quick side note. The Bible never tells us. It never gives us a window into Bathsheba's mind, and I kind of wish it did, but it doesn't. It never tells us what she's thinking, how she's feeling, what her motives are in this situation. And here's why I bring that up. I have heard sermons, I have read articles and studying this story at two different extremes. I've seen some portray Bathsheba as like a, a temptress who seduced David in this story, all the way to the other side of she is a helpless victim of King David. And I think it's unwise to speculate in either direction because, very simply, the Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, we should be careful not to go beyond Scripture. But at the very least, I think that we can say that added to all of David's sin in this story, we can say that this was a horrific abuse of power on David's part. He was leveraging his authority as king. And true leadership serves others by giving. It doesn't dishonor others by taking. But here's the point I'm trying to make here. This sin didn't come out of nowhere. It started with this downward spiral, not pursuing his calling, not controlling his thoughts, and then following up on it. Do I need to switch to handheld? Or are we good? No, we'll just keep going. Um, let me give you two things we can take away from this. First of all, never underestimate your ability to sin. Never underestimate your ability to sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
Who can understand it? That verse is why this, what I'm about to say, is the worst advice given in the history of humanity. Follow your heart. <laughs> it's the worst advice in the history of humanity. Let me tell you guys, David was following his heart in this story. <laughs> he was doing what seemed right to him, what felt good to him in the moment. He was following his heart, and look how it ended up. Listen, I'll switch to this guy. Thank you, sir. We good? All right. Here's the deal. We can read this story and think, I could never do that. There's no way I could ever do that. And this is what I want to tell you this morning. I love you enough to be blunt. The kind of person who thinks they could never do this is exactly the kind of person who would do this. I mean, think about it. Do we think we're better than David? <laughs> a man after God's own heart. A man who wrote half of the Psalms in the Bible. Do we think we're better than him? Never, ever underestimate your ability to sin. But second, never nurture, quote-unquote, little sins. I said that in quotes because there's really no such thing as a little sin against an infinite God. Because you might be tempted to think, well— I wouldn't go that far, right? I would never commit adultery or commit murder like David, but I indulge a lustful fantasy every now and then. Who doesn't? Or I harbor anger and resentment or bitterness against another person or greed and covetousness. I mean, nobody's perfect. It's just thoughts. What danger is that going to do, Pastor Nate? Well, to respond to that, I want to tell you about Teddy. Who's Teddy? Glad you asked. This is a news story from 2009 in the Seattle Times. Listen to this story. For nine years, Kelly Ann Walls kept the black bear she called Teddy as a pet, raising it from cubhood at her hilltop home where she also cared for a mountain lion and a tiger. Let's just say she needed some new hobbies. Um, on Sunday night, she went into Teddy's 15 by 15 foot steel and concrete cage, throwing a shovel full of dog food to one side to distract the bear while she cleaned the other side. She'd done it a thousand times, said her friend and neighbor, Scott Castone. And on 1001, something happened. The 350 pound bear turned on walls and attacked. Walls' two young children and Castone's children saw the attack and summoned help. Castone shot and killed the bear. Walls, 37, was pronounced dead at the scene. Church, we might think that that lustful thought is harmless. You might think that the unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment that you are harboring in your heart toward another person is like, a, it's just a cute little teddy bear. But every adultery started as a lustful thought. Every murder started as an angry thought. Every theft started as a greedy thought. And if we don't deal with our sin while it's a small little cub like Teddy, eventually it will grow up and kill us. It does not stay small. The Puritan theologian John Owen famously wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So we see this tragic downward spiral in David's life. And then Bathsheba comes to him with the news, I'm pregnant. And we think maybe at this point David will fess up. Maybe at this point he'll confess his sin, but we're not there yet. Next, we're going to see the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. Instead of confession, he goes into cover-up mode. He goes into damage control mode. He brings Uriah back home, presumably under the guise of getting a battle report. He says, hey man, why don't you go home? Spend some time with your wife. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. 
thinking that he'll sleep with her and that he'll think the baby is his and that they'll be none the wiser and everything will be good. But Uriah is too noble to do this. He said, my brothers in battle are sleeping in the open field. I'm not going to go sleep in my house. So David now goes to plan B. Anybody know what plan B was? Get him drunk. That'll fix this whole problem. That's what we need. Let's get him drunk because then he'll definitely go home. That didn't work either. One commentator said that Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. And so, what does he do next? Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So not just Uriah gets killed by David's scheme, but it says some of the servants of David also fell. Multiple people died in order to cover up David's sin. Before we're too hard on him, though, isn't this a picture of what we do all the time? When we sin like David, how often do we run away from God and try to cover up and hide like Adam and Eve in the garden with the fig leaves instead of running to God and being honest about what we've done? And what happens is that sin breeds more sin because now instead of honest confession, we have to lie and deceive and manipulate to try to cover it up. And let me tell you, if you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, God will not let you have peace in this season. He won't. The Holy Spirit will make you miserable because he loves you. This is what David wrote. I think David probably wrote these next few verses I'm going to read about this time in his life when he was covering up his sin. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Let me encourage you, church, if you are here today and there is a sin that you're wrestling with, first and foremost, confess that to the Lord, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive. Find a trusted brother or sister in Christ that you can talk with and be real with and confess that to them. Believe the promise of Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. But the last thing we see in this story about the power of sin are the consequences of sin. The consequences. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And I'm about to read the biggest understatement in the Bible. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's an ominous ending to this chapter. Think about the consequences here. People are dead a marriage has been destroyed between Uriah and Bathsheba. David's relationship with God suffers. The thing that he did displeased the Lord. It might seem like David is getting away with this, but we know better that this broke God's heart. Finally, if you read the rest of 2 Samuel, you'll see that David's legacy is tarnished. 
because these chapters almost serve as a hinge for 2 Samuel. The first half is wild success. The second half, his life and the kingdom are falling apart. Sin has consequences, guys, both now and in eternity. There are consequences now, even though, yes, even though when we come to Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven, praise the Lord for the gospel. Our sin still has consequences in this life. If you commit a crime, even if you're a Christian and your sins are forgiven, you're still liable to legal consequences. If you sin against another person, even though your sins are forgiven, there's trust could still be broken in the relationship and reconciliation needing to take place. Sin has consequences here and now, but even more seriously, it has consequences into eternity. The Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death. And unless we come to Jesus Christ and find forgiveness and life in him, we will bear the consequences of our sin in eternity in a place called hell. Merry Christmas. Uh, are you encouraged yet? Is this the heartwarming Christmas sermon uh, that you wanted to hear coming in this morning? Listen, I hope you're buckled up because we're about to take a very sharp right turn. We have looked sin straight in the face for the first half of this sermon. We've seen how horrible, how ugly, how destructive it really is. But now, I hope that your breath will be taken away along with me with the amazingness of God's grace. Let's look at the reality that grace redeems. We're about to see God's grace at work in David and Bathsheba's lives. Look at chapter 12 with me. And the Lord sent Nathan to David— and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Think about that. God is sending someone to reach out to him. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come, again, who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity." one of the most dramatic moments in the Bible, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. David thinks he got away with it. But one day Nathan shows up and he tells him this story and David is scandalized and outraged. He will not tolerate sheep stealing in his kingdom. And his guilty conscience is showing up by this overreaction. And Nathan tells him, you are the man, David. You are the man. What we see here is the grace of confrontation. The grace of confrontation. That God loved David so much that he sent someone to confront him over his sin. Why do I call this grace? Because a lot of you guys might be thinking, Pastor Nate, I hate confrontation. It feels a lot more like judgment than grace. It's not fun. Here's the deal. This is why confrontation is grace. The worst thing God could ever do to you is leave you in your sin. 
the worst thing. In fact, it says in Romans chapter 1 that that's an expression of God's wrath, is to leave you in your sin, to give you over to your sin. But in God's grace, he loved David so much that he sent a prophet to confront him and to wake him up. In church, let me tell you, in the body of Christ, we all need the grace of confrontation in our lives. We all sin like David and fall short. We all have blind spots in our lives. That's why one of our core values here at Coastal is accountability. And this is how we do that. In the spirit of Matthew 18, holding one another accountable, as it says in Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day. This is to be a daily thing. Every day, as long as it's called today, just in case you don't know what every day means. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Unless we're doing this, we are susceptible to sin's deceitfulness. So let me give you the application point. Every Christian both needs a Nathan and needs to be a Nathan. Every Christian needs a Nathan and needs to be a Nathan. We all need people who will hold us accountable, and we all need people that we can hold accountable. We all have blind spots in our lives. We all need those people that love us enough to tell us the truth. Don't surround yourself with yes people who will pump up your ego. Surround yourself with people that love you enough to tell you the truth when you're falling short. I want you guys to find another believer and say to them this week, I'm giving you a hunting license. Go hunting in my life. Show me where I'm falling short so that I can be more like Christ. You don't have somebody like that? Let me give you a good place to find one, a small group. Small groups are the place where we build these relationships organically. We find a trusted brother or sister in Christ that I can be real with when I'm struggling and that can hold me accountable. Let's exhort one another daily to pursue Christ. The next form of grace we see in this story is the grace of repentance. The grace of repentance. So Nathan gives this great speech from the Lord outlining everything that the Lord had done for David and everything that he had sinned against. And after that, David says to Nathan in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Very simple. No excuses. No justifications. No rationalizations. No blaming other people. Just a simple, honest confession. And out of this story, I hope you know, comes what I believe to be the most beautiful expression of confession and repentance in all of the Bible. Psalm 51. Now, I wish we had time to go through Psalm 51. That's a whole other sermon. But I want to show you just a couple of verses from Psalm 51 that show us what genuine repentance looks like. First of all, genuine repentance appeals to God's mercy, not our merit. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David knew that his only hope was the mercy of God, nothing he could do. But notice this. He acknowledges that this sin was ultimately against the Lord. Verse 4 is crazy of Psalm 51. I don't use that word lightly. But listen to verse 4. He says to God, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Anybody find any problems with that? What about Uriah? (laughs) 
What about Bathsheba? What about your whole kingdom? He acknowledged that ultimately, on an ultimate level, every sin is against God because he is the one that we are accountable to. We are made in his image. The very purpose of our existence is the glory of God. So every time we sin, we are failing at the very reason we exist. That's why sin is ultimately against God. Thirdly, genuine repentance depends on God's cleansing. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He knows I can't clean myself up. Only God can do that. Fourth, and I love this one. He acknowledged that genuine repentance leads to worship. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I've been in counseling situations where after the sin has finally been forsaken and repented of, one of the first things that they say is, it's like my relationship with God has been renewed. My time in prayer, my time in the word, my time in corporate worship at church, it's so much sweeter now that the roadblock has been removed. It leads to worship. Guys, this is powerful stuff. This genuine repentance. You know, I, I can remember years ago, I was meeting with a young man for discipleship, and I really don't know how to describe it, but upon meeting him, call it the Holy Spirit, call it pastoral intuition, call it what you want, man. I just knew something about this guy that I don't know how I knew. I was like, there, there's a sin in his life. And I didn't really know, I wasn't going to go full, you are the man, like our first time in Starbucks or anything. So, uh, but I got to know him, and in our third meeting, I said, let's study Psalm 51. And we talked about confession, and we talked about repentance, and he breaks down weeping, and he confesses that the reason he wanted to meet with me is because there's a sin in his life that he's been wrestling with, and he needs help, and he felt trapped, and he felt hopeless. So the Lord gave me this opportunity to walk with him and help him. And now, praise God, he got through that season. He turned away from his sin. He's married. He's moved away, and he's walking with God to this day. Guys, I tell you this story for this reason, because maybe you came in here this morning feeling that same weight of conviction, that same weight of shame. Let me tell you, you are not hopeless, and you are not trapped. God can bring about healing and restoration in your life, no matter what it is. Give it to God. Talk to someone. Sin grows in the dark. Talk to someone. Drag it into the light so that you can find healing. Next in this story, we see the grace of forgiveness. The grace of forgiveness. Verse 13, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. But then what does Nathan say in response? Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. He's forgiven, but I want you to get this. He also doesn't get what he deserves. He doesn't die. Leviticus 20 verse 10, listen to this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Under the Old Testament law, David should have been killed. He should have been given the death penalty, but God, in his grace, did not give David what he deserved. He forgave him freely. And as Christians, that's heartwarming for us. That's encouraging to us, and it should be. But I also don't want you to miss the scandal of this. We should be scandalized by this. I mean, maybe an illustration will help. Imagine it's not King David in this story. Imagine it's one of the high-level leaders in our government had committed adultery, 
and then in order to cover it up, had multiple people murdered and continually lied about it for a year. How would you feel then if this person was on trial, they were found guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt, and when it came time for sentencing, the judge said, I forgive you, go free, no jail, no death penalty. Would you be clapping and celebrating what a heartwarming story of forgiveness? You'd be protesting in the streets is what you'd be doing at this horrible miscarriage of justice, saying this is terrible. How could this happen? You would be outraged and scandalized if that happened. So let me ask you this. How can God forgive David and be holy? Well, how about we make it more personal? How can God forgive you and be holy? How can God forgive me and be holy? Do you understand that we have sinned against the judge of the universe and we have been found guilty? Do you understand that it is as if we are standing before the throne of heaven and there is a finger pointed at all of us saying, you are the man, you are the woman. How can God be holy and forgive us? This is how. You know, David, Nathan pointed at David and said, you are the man and he was forgiven. But David was going to have another ancestor through Bathsheba, by the way, who would be perfect. 1,000 years later, he would be born and he would live as the only sinless human being ever. And he would be the only person who didn't deserve to hear those four words, you are the man. But what words were ringing in Jesus' ears as he was approaching the cross? Listen to John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Innocent. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And do not miss this. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Guilty David heard, You are the man, and he was forgiven. Innocent Jesus heard, Behold the man, and he was condemned. Why? So that David could be forgiven. So that you could be forgiven. So that Nate Weiss could be forgiven. God can forgive David because Jesus was punished in David's place. And not only David, but every single person who would ever trust in him. Church, this is the gospel, the heart of the gospel, that on the cross, Jesus Christ stood in our place, bearing our sin and shame, taking the punishment that we deserved so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one that has faith in Jesus. And he rose from the grave three days later, proving beyond the shadow of a doubt that the price had been paid in full. That's the gospel. That in Christ, God can treat us in a way infinitely better than what we deserve because he treated Jesus how we deserve to be treated on the cross. That's grace. The last form of grace we see in this story is the grace of new life. The grace of new life. 
Verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. You know, when we continue in the story, the Lord took David and Bathsheba's first child as an act of judgment for David's sin. And David, he fasts for seven days and the child still dies. And David then worships the Lord and his servants come and say, why would you do that? Why would you worship the Lord after what's happened? And David says very famously, I will see that child again. Which, by the way, I know there are many in our church family that have gone through the tragic, horrible loss of a child in infancy. And I believe that that verse in 2 Samuel is a very, very strong hint that those children who pass away in infancy are in the loving arms of our Heavenly Father in heaven. But this story doesn't end in death. Because now, David and Bathsheba have a child together named Solomon. And many of you know that King Solomon ended up being a much greater king than David, much more powerful than David, much more influential than David, wrote many books of the Bible, had a great kingdom. But ultimately, as we saw in the genealogy in the beginning of the sermon, it is through Solomon that Jesus came into the world. And think about it. David had many other children that could have carried on the messianic line, but God chose Solomon, the son of David and Uriah's wife. Why? Is it possible that he wanted to give us one more piece of evidence, as if we needed any more, that our God delights in working through even the most messy and broken situations to accomplish his purposes and to bring glory to himself? Friends, if God can use David and Bathsheba's life for good, how much more can he use your life for good? Do you believe that? This leads to the last point this morning, and we'll close with this. I'll go ahead and invite the prayer team and worship teams up now. I know I'm going long. Jesus is the king that we need. Guys, Jesus is the true king that we need. King David was a great king, one of the greatest kings in the Bible, but he let us down. By the way, Solomon wasn't that great either. Read about him. He had lots of problems too. Every king did, except for one. Jesus is the true king that we need. Jesus is the true and better David. You know, I read a really great article a couple of weeks ago prepping for this sermon. It's called The Gospel According to David and Bathsheba by Davis Lacey. I'd encourage you to Google that and read the whole thing. But I want to read you this quote from the article. It was so good. He, that is Jesus, would do for others what his ancestor David was unable to accomplish for himself. King David remained at home instead of going out to battle. Christ willingly left his heavenly home to fight the battle against sin and to win that battle on a cross and in an empty tomb. King David took someone else's life in order to cover up his sin. Christ willingly laid down his life to forgive the sins of others. King David took a bride which was not rightfully his. Through living a holy and blameless life, shedding his blood, and rising from the dead, Jesus Christ purchased a people for his own possession, a holy bride composed of people from all tribes and tongues, a bride composed of people like me and people like you. God put the story of King David and Bathsheba in the Bible as a warning against the destructive tendencies of sin but it is also a foreshadowing of the freedom from sin which Christ has won for his people. 
Jesus is the true king that we need. And at Christmas, we celebrate that this king has come in order to save people like David, in order to save people like me, in order to save people like you from our sin. And so let me leave you with two takeaways real quick. First, turn to Christ for salvation. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're here today and the Holy Spirit is convicting you and challenging you and you want to have this relationship with God that we're talking about. We have prayer team members right down here at the front. During this last song, after the sermon, we'd love to talk with you about the gospel and pray with you and show you how you can have this relationship with Christ for salvation. But second, worship Christ on Christmas week. Guys, don't let this be just another routine Christmas week with the parties and the carols and whatever else. Set aside some time to be amazed by Jesus, to be in awe of him. Get alone with God. Get in the word to hear from Jesus. Get in prayer. Come next week eager and excited to worship Jesus together. Let's be amazed by our King this week. Let's close in prayer. Lord, simultaneously, we are humbled and broken at the reality of our sin. But we are amazed at your love, at your grace, so far beyond what we could deserve. We praise you, Jesus, that you are the king that we truly need. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us Help us to forsake sin and pursue you. Help us to love one another in the body of Christ, being Nathans for one another. Help us, Father, to be quick to confess, quick to forgive, quick to repent, that we would be a people that glorifies you in everything. God, we love you and praise you. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.